Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This week on TWIP, photographing the Olympians, popular photography magazine asks, what is a photograph? And a discussion with Sil Arena on big lighting with small speed lights. All that coming your way next on episode number 131 of This Week in Photography. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 60,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash TWIP. And welcome back to another exciting episode of This Week in Photography. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Today on the show, we're going to be talking a little bit about the Olympic photography, even though we don't have anyone on the show who has actually gone there. We were going to, but uh, technical difficulties prevented us from having uh, those folks on the show. But I'm going to, I'm going to talk about So we lost both our Canadians. Bit. We lost both of our Canadians. And, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not blaming anybody, but... They're not here. So we're going to talk about them. We're going to talk about the Olympics and how the United States won the hockey game last night. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, because, you know, we make our own reality here in the uh, in the in in North America. So, you know, if we told people that, you know, if if we've got enough uh, newscasts to believe it, you know, in in the United States, that's, you know, it's hey, you know, I make my own reality and then I live in it. So. So today on the show, as you just heard a second ago, Mr. Alex Lindsay is joining us. Hey, Alex. Hello. And also Mr. Joseph Linaski, a.k.a. Travel Junkie, a.k.a. Photo Joseph, and also ApertureExpert.com guy. <laughs> yeah, I think I need to slay a name there. Good morning. <laughs> hey, Joseph. How you doing? I'm good, thanks. All right. So we got a lot of stuff to talk about in the show. So as you can see, I'm powering through this because I want to make sure that we get to all of it. Uh, before we no, jump I have, in, I have aperture questions for Joseph, too. Like, you know, and he's the guy to answer them. I know. So we're going to have a discussion. You know how I know? You know how I know Joseph can answer those questions? Yes. Um, how do you know? Beca- because, you know, as I mentioned, you run AperturExpert.com and we did a little workshop and I saw you in action teaching <laughs> folks how to use Aperture 3. So we're going to talk about that a little <laughs> bit. But before before we talk about that stuff, I want to give a nod to our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. They're the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks. They've got more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all kinds of literature, uh, featuring audio versions of many New New York Times bestsellers and more. Uh, And for listeners of This Week in Photography, Audible is offering a free audiobook of your choice. If you'd like to get one, just head over to uh, audible.com forward slash twip and uh, download one of them and play around with it. I'm listening to a great one right now. What are you, what are you listening to? Did we talk about this one on the last one, The Kids Stay in the Picture by Robert Evans? Oh. So Robert Evans was a, was a big, big time producer back in the 70s uh, in Par- at Paramount. And this is kind of his, I don't know what it is, autobiography or, or you know, him just talking about what, what it was like to be you know, there at that time. And... Uh, and it was one, Andy Nako actually talked about it on one of the Mac breaks, and um, and so I downloaded it. And people are wondering uh, whether it's good. It's it's awesome. It's just this crag craggy old. It's it's actually writ, writ, uh, read by Robert Evans, and so it's so it's this craggly craggly old uh, Hollywood guy talking about the seventy early seventies and dealing with 
you know, all the things he had to deal with. And it's, it's very fun. So anyway, it's called the kids stay. The kid stays in the picture. And who's the, Robert. who's the author though? Robert Evans. Robert Evans. Cool. Evans. Not the photographer, Robert Evans. Um, another guy. And it's, and I don't think he, I don't think he did any, had anything to do with Bob Evans either. <laughs> sausage. <laughs> There's no, he is not the sausage king of Chicago. There you go. There you go. I'm reading one right now too. Uh, it's called Rich Dad, Poor Dad by mm-hmm. Robert T. Uh, Kiyosaki. Have you heard of that one? I'm not. Alex? Yeah, it's uh, it's a, it's an old book, um, but it is a classic. And basically, it just talks about how it's not a photography book. So sorry, this week in photography, it's more about how to change your mindset into thinking more like people who have money think. <laughs> so <laughs> in terms in terms of how to keep your money and you know how it, it's really interesting because it goes into like the poor dads thinking of how you're going to work for somebody and then retire, yada, yada, yada. And then the rich dad thinking is how you're going to build a business and have people work for you and have multiple streams of income, yada, yada, yada. That kind of I think, thing. I think we should just rename that How to Be Scott Bourne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's the original rich dad, right? <laughs> he just thinks a different way than we do. He really does. I mean, he, he does. You know, he does. To Scott and he just... He understands the model, you know, much better than, than we do. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to I'm trying to understand that model, but it's uh it's interesting. It's a little depressing because apparently I've been living like poor dad all, <laughs> all my life. I'm apparently poor dad right here. So we're gonna try to fix that. Anyway, uh, Joseph, are you listening to any books right now or are you just too busy shooting and running workshops and all that kind of stuff? Well, the, the problem is that I don't have a commute anymore. So since I work from home, so I don't really have that much time to listen to things like uh, like audiobooks. And when I am in the car, I tend to listen to podcasts, which mm. um, I'm sure that many of the uh, many of this podcasts that are sponsored by Audible would appreciate it if I didn't stop listening to their podcasts. So <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Well, for the Twip listeners, again, if you're interested in a free audiobook of your choice, head over to audiblepodcast.com forward slash Twip and download some of the things that we're talking about. Um, up first, like I was talking to, like talking about a few seconds ago, Joseph and his aperture powers. Um, we, Joseph, you and I did a workshop together last week. And yeah, we did uh, at Joshua Tree. You want to, uh, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So we we kicked off the first this week in photography weekend workshop, and uh, I have to say it worked out really, really well. I think it exceeded both of our expectations, and we got some great feedback from our guests. But basically, in a nutshell, it was a, an all inclusive workshop that started Friday evening and went until late Sunday afternoon. We opened up with a lecture and a meet and greet barbecue and then spent Saturday in a couple of fantastic locations out near Joshua Tree, one place called Boulder Garden. It's a private, uh, a bit of private land where we had just some incredible natural, um, you know, boulders, obviously huge boulders and trees and little rivers and rocks and all those fabulous things. And spent the second half of the day in a place called Pioneer Town, which is actually a 1940s purpose-built movie set of a town for an Old West uh, movie that is still there and owned mostly by one person. So we were able to get access to that and do some shooting in there and worked through all different kinds of lighting presentations uh, from working with natural light to working with artificial lights, single lights and multiple lights and so on. And wrapped up the day there with a dinner, you know, a, a kind of a cocktail party and dinner and then a little photo slideshow at the end of the evening at a place that we rented out there. And yep. then Sunday, Sunday morning, we had a aperture presentation and a Lightroom presentation and then worked through some studio lighting demos and uh, that wrapped up our, our weekend. It was very successful. Yeah, it was a good time. It was uh, a lot of the, the folks that attended commented that it, it felt a little like photo camp because you know how you 
you bond with people when you're in isolation with them for for a little for a short period of time, and then at the end, it's like all all emotional because you have to leave and go back home. So it was a it was really a, a fun experience, and uh, definitely the first of many. Hopefully, yeah. I know, Frederick, you've already got a, a write up on your blog about it. I'm a little behind on mine, but I'm going to get that up today. By the time this goes uh, into the feed, that'll definitely be up, and we'll cross post something over to uh, Twiplog as well. Absolutely. Yeah. My, my blog, uh, in case, in case folks haven't heard of it, it's at frederickvan.com. And there's the, the headlining post right now is a little write up about the workshop with a video that was created by Chris Fenwick. Uh, amazing video that he put together that brought the attendees, some of them to tears, I think. I think it was me, maybe. Um, but it was, <laughs> it was, he did a really a fantastic job on that video. So check it out and be sure to, to check out his stuff too. I put a link to his website in the bottom of my post there. So. That's it. So that was our first first workshop. So keep an eye. Watch the space for more. Um, the next thing that we wanted to talk about is the Olympics. And as I said at the beginning, I'm very proud of the United States for winning the game last <laughs> night. And I mean, I don't know how we pulled it out. I mean, it was we just came up from behind and then took it. Alex, what, did you watch the game? I think I think you didn't quite get to the end of the game. The part with me. <laughs> Lost. <laughs> Hey, it's my own reality. It's my own reality. So, you know, from a photography standpoint, Twip listeners, we wanted to have um, Lisa Bettany and Steve Simon on the show. But unfortunately, Steve, or fortunately for Steve, he's in Dubai teaching a workshop or doing something crazy like that. And Lisa's having technical difficulties up in Canada, probably recovering from shooting all last night. Um, But uh, so we're we are left to our own devices to sort of analyze the Olympics from a photographer standpoint. And I wanted to, I wanted to take this opportunity to say like, Alex, this, when you shoot an event like the Olympics, um, which is unlike any other event, if you were going to go there being like the travel guy that you are, what, how would you prepare yourself? Because you're, I know know that it's a series of events that you know are going to happen. And I, I assume the photographers, the official photographers that are lucky enough to get in there are corralled into a certain location how do you how do you make sure you get a shot that everybody else isn't getting at a, in an event like that? Elbows. <laughs> Elbows. I mean, I'm just telling That's you, the key. there's That's a the point key. right at the bottom of their rib cage. You just hit it really hard and um, <laughs> they'll move out of the way for quite some time, at least to get their breath back. You know, I mean, that's that's how I would start the conversation, you know, because, like, you know, especially if you're taking hockey, they're going to understand. I mean, that was like mm-hmm. game body, body you check. Put on, you put them against the boards. You know, it's just it's kind of par for the course. So yep. the um uh but uh, what I what I would say is that with any of these when I'm shooting outside of San Francisco uh for a job and and I, you know Steve is actually the person to really talk to about this but yeah um you know for me the couple things that I do is generally I have two of everything uh, that I really not lenses but two bodies um I have uh, usually my standard um travel uh mix of of memory is about I have eight eight gig cards on in two little um, Pelican cases, maybe mm-hmm. little, those little Pelican cases I've talked about in the past. So yeah. I've got two of the, you know, two of those full of eight gig cards. I make sure that they're empty. They're flattened. There's nothing on them. They're ready to go. And as I shoot with them, you know, what I'm doing is I'm, they're all uh label up. And as I shoot with them, if I haven't backed them up, they're all labeled down. So I can very quickly figure out which ones are which. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then I, you know, then I, I'm trying to f- always have the lens, the lenses that will give me the, the full range, you know, so something, usually mine starts with a fisheye because I'm shooting, you know, HDRs and then goes up mm-hmm. to about 200 millimeters for me. Now, obviously for this, I think that there's, you know, 
people using much longer lenses than what what I'm um, what I'm what I'm typically using for the kind of shooting that we're doing. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, but you know that's the you know you oftentimes nowadays you can't check every you can't carry everything on. So um, you know we use uh, very hardened cases, um, you know Pelican cases usually that are specific for our different cameras uh, yeah. and check. You know, we checked uh, a lot of gear, $80,000 worth of gear to, uh, to um, uh, Seychelles, which was very nerve-wracking. When you get there, you're just like watching everything to make sure it all comes it's out. It's insured you, though, right? It was all insured. Well, that's the whole thing. So what, what you do is you make sure that, and this is really important for photographers, is that if this is your profession and you're starting to get to a point where you're checking, if, if I, when I was not doing this for work, I never checked anything. But you shouldn't have that much gear. Once you're checking stuff, uh, we have insurance that covers us um, in the United States for uh, you know losses uh, you know up to the you know into the um, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, yeah. depending on and that's required. A lot of people, a lot of our clients that work with us uh, require that's part of the the contract is that we have to have certain amounts of liability, certain amounts of loss insurance, and so we can't get the job if we don't have that. So so we have that for the United States. When you go out, of t- the thing you have to be careful of is what happens when you leave the country, and it can be Canada. Sometimes it's North America is included in your insurance. In our case, um, nothing outside of the United States. Fifty, the fifty states is included, and so we buy riders, um, you know, that go on top of our insurance that is going to cover us specifically for this trip. And we, when we do that, there's, you know, we have to keep track of every serial number of everything that's going out. Uh, we have to make lists, and then you get into, um, I mean, the other the other side of all of this that people don't think about is dealing with customs. Uh, and we're going to, I'm going to do a lot of talking about that with some of the other podcasts we're working on, but understanding, you know, how to deal with customs. Cause there's, um, certain countries that are simple. There's 75 countries that you go to our customs here and you lay out everything you're, you know, usually you don't have to bring it with you. You just have a list of this is what we're going to do. They stamp it. And then you have to show that paper when you get into the country, you show that paper when you leave the country, you show that paper when you come back into our country and that makes sure that everybody knows that they're not losing any taxes, which is all they really care about. And so the, yeah. um, so there's all of this stuff that, that we've been learn you know, we learn every time we do it. There's a couple of new rules that we forgot usually and then we have to talk, you know, smile and talk our way through. <laughs> yeah. Just be be nice. Don't be the ugly American. Now Joseph, when you're you do a lot of traveling overseas, if you were going to an event like the Olympics and uh you know you know what the we we've seen photographers at the Olympics before, what what kind of things would you prepare for if this was your first time there, and I know you, you're, you'd probably over-prepare if I know you, Joseph. <laughs> so what would you bring, A, like gear-wise, and then B, sure. in terms of insurance, are you covered by like ASMP or, you know, any, any uh, photography organization that would, you know, sort of cover the loss or theft of your gear? Right. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, basically what would I bring and bring everything? <laughs> like you said, over-prepare, just bring pretty much everything. Yeah, I definitely have insurance, you know, wouldn't leave home without it. Um, I mean, something as big as the Olympics, you probably don't have to worry too much about backup gear because all the big names, you know, Canon and Nikon are there with facilities on site to do repairs, to do cleaning, to loan you gear. And obviously there's a limit to how much they have. You can't rely on it. But if you do get stuck, um, often they can, they can definitely help you out. But if you're not at a big event like that and you are going somewhere that's kind of, you know, critical, you need to make sure that you know that you can use a particular lens while you're there and, you know, you've only got one of them. I would say do your research ahead of time and find local rental houses or even retail stores where you can rent or buy the gear on location if you get stuck, you know, assuming that you're going to a place that has that kind of uh, capability. But yeah. it's definitely worth doing the research ahead of time. So if you know, the morning of the shoot, you suddenly you, know, you drop that 7200, taking it out of the bag and it shatters, 
you know where you can go first thing in the morning to get a new one. That's a great, yeah. that's a really great point. We um, usually have, I, for video shoots, we, any major city that we're going into and generally any town, we know uh, three or four locations that are going to have uh, theoretically all the gear that we need. Uh, mm-hmm. And we've needed to go there um, probably 20% of the time, you know, for something wow. like some little connector or something isn't working or something is, you know, not quite right, uh, you know, or, or just we, we need to get a couple more things that, that we probably could have survived without, but we decided, well, since we know where it is, uh, we'll go. And, and, uh, and especially in a, in a larger city, there'll be a lot of opportunities, but you don't want to try to figure it out. You're absolutely right, Joseph. You don't want to try to figure it out when you're shooting. Now, would it, would it make sense, and I haven't done this before, but would it make sense to um, use a, a rental service like borrowlenses.com or lensrentals.com to, instead of bringing all this expensive gear with you and worrying about customs and shipping and all this stuff, can you just go there and say, these are, I, I need these seven lenses, ship them to my hotel, and I'll pick them up when I get to the hotel, and then when I'm done shooting, give them back to the, uh, you know, and let the hotel ship them out? They're going to typically deal with the same customs issues that you are. I guess you could try to have them. Yeah, but they're it. dealing with them. <laughs> so. Yeah, you know, you know. I, all I got to say is that I would rather I, I'd rather know what I have before I left. You know, mm-hmm. that's kind of my. You know, I kind of want to um, take a look at it, put everything together. We we tend sure. to put everything yeah. together, make sure it's working, make sure that you know, kind of back up everything, and you know, make sure that everything's connecting and um, not have it, you know any surprises. But yeah. I, it, it probably could. It's just that I, I think that we're probably and we might be we may err on the side of. Caution, caution but we found pretty much every time we don't um you know bites us somewhere yeah joseph would you ever do that would you would you rent stuff and have it shipped to a location and then pick it up at the hotel shoot then ship it back i suppose it depend on where where the location was i've never done that before um i've rented gear for shoots and had it shipped to me first um i guess i never really thought about having it shipped to the location probably for the same reason alex is saying i just want to know what i have you when i have it, it. I, I make sure that yeah. it's you know bond with it first right yeah, exactly. And especially if it's anything even slightly complicated, like, a you know, say, a, a strobe, you know, a flash that has 22 buttons on it, 7,000 different functions, you may want to get some time with it before you're using it in the field. I mean, I guess if you rent the same thing over and over again, then that's not a big deal. But if you're doing that, you probably own it anyway. Yeah, yeah, very true. Well, cool. Well, I think on a, on a following show, whenever we can nail down Lisa and Steve Simon, we'll, we'll get into the uh, pits of you know, how, uh, how it is to photograph an event like the Olympics. Also, a friend of mine, Jeff Cable, has agreed to come on the show as a guest. And he was actually at the Olympics as well. He works at a little company called Lexar. So um, going to have a chat with him and see if we can't uh, pick his brain about his photography. He's got a, a cool website up with a lot of his imagery up there that he shot there that we'll link to from the blog post or from the show notes, etc. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get to the bottom of this one way or another. <laughs> And the next story that I wanted to shout about is um, there was a story that was that was posted online about cell phones damaging the digital camera market, like the iPhone, and like people are are people using their 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 iPhones and little little tiny cameras like that instead of digital SLRs. Now I have my own opinions of that about this, and you guys might kind of guess what it is, but. Uh, I want to start with you, Alex. Do you think with with the the capabilities that are in these small devices like the iPhone that is going to maybe take away from market share of the DSLRs? Not from the DSLR. I think from the low end ones. I think you absolutely it affects it. I, I think that you know I look at how my kids. You know, I I bought them little point and shoot cameras, and all they use is their iPhone. You know, you mm-hmm. know, and, and so that that's uh, 
for the point and shoot market, I think that that's making it. That's gonna. It, it definitely is gonna eat into the sub two hundred dollar uh, camera. I think yep. it's it's hard to justify uh, for many people the, the type of person who's buying a sub two hundred dollar camera. It's very hard to justify not just using their iPhone or their whatever they're using to um, to take pictures. And so so I think that that's the issue. I mean, like when I shoot with my iPhone, I know that it's got a GPS, it's got information, it's got maybe the image isn't quite as good, but you know if I'm getting a sub two hundred dollar camera, I don't know how much. I don't know how uh, much better it's going to be for the, given the person who's using, you know, who's looking at that. As well, far speaking, as speaking radically, itself, though, do you think you think down the line we're going to see that mid-range plate and shoot market that are you know like sub G nine level are we, or G ten G eleven whatever level? Well, there's a lot. Of those cameras G9. are we going to see those cameras go away because everybody has so. a cell phone? If you got a five megapixel camera in your cell phone, why buy the other thing? I'll be honest with you. What I'm surprised at that we haven't seen um, to date, I think, I think that the chances of us seeing it this year or next year is very high, is someone is going to figure out that uh, we really don't want them to figure out what features we get. What we want is a sensor with a uh, re- removable lens mm-hmm. um, that has a slot for our iPhone. <laughs> just pop the Wait iPhone on the, you know, like a little <laughs> gap and just pop the iPhone onto the back and it controls the camera. I mean, you know, uh, the thing is, is yeah. that... I don't want to. I don't want them to figure it out anymore because they're idiots. You know. So the thing. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm sorry if someone from a Canon or Nikon engineering is listening. But but the thing is, is that they they do so much. Uh, they we have we have bad interfaces to to dig through to try to find stuff, and then they turn all the stuff off. When you look at the hacks that that are available for Canon, you realize how much they're just turning off. You know, to protect yeah. protect us from ourselves. My whole thing is is just make a basic app. Stop stop worrying about the interface. Give us a sensor. Give us a removable lens. Call it a day. No, Joseph, do you do you agree with Alex that Nikon and Canon are idiots? <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually, I do. Especially when it comes to GPS Put, Joseph on, my on the Canon. hot seat right there. Especially Not when it comes bitter. to GPS on my Canon, because they still you know insist that GPS isn't important to anybody. Um, so the thing is, this, but, is, this is the exact point. Just stop thinking about it. Like my, my message to these folk, these these camera companies: yeah. stop, stop. Don't yeah. you don't have to worry about it anymore. Just give us the lens and the sensor and call it a day. Yeah, no, it's very true. But back to the the actual question at hand here, if, it, if it's cannibalizing the market, um, I definitely agree with Alex that it is it is going to continue to hurt the lower end market for the point and shoot cameras. But if anything, I think it's going to help the high end market because people, everybody has a camera now. It's not like it's a special thing to have a camera. So you have more and more people that are uh, have the opportunity to take pictures, and more and more people that have the opportunity to take crappy pictures with their you know iPhones or, or little disposables or you know whatever cheap cameras and then they go well gosh you know I kind of like this whole photography thing maybe it's worth spending a little money and since they already have something that fits in their pocket instead of spending $200 on a point and shoot maybe they'll go spend 7 or $800 on a you know a little rebel a little kit camera and a little you know kit DSLR and then go from there so i think if anything yeah. it's going to help the market yeah i mean that's what i would like to see in a utopian kind of world i would love to have a camera that just has a slot on the back like alex like you're saying that i can slap my iphone into it and and run applications on the iphone or whatever device and configure it however i want so whether i'm going to be doing you know say there's a hdr application i can just configure it and it's just this beautiful ui that i can have do whatever whatever i want how far how, how far away are we from that kind of thing? Do you think it's ever going to happen? Or Nikon oh yeah, I think someone's going to do it, and it may not be a big company. It may not be one of the big companies. I mean, the company that would that would probably do it better than anyone out there is probably Sigma, because they they've not really got a ton of traction on you know you know. I mean, they 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 keep on putting out stuff, and they they make a lot of lenses. What they need is a is a is a thing that takes their lenses, uh, and they've got a bunch of cameras, but they would be the ones that have the that would have the most to gain. 
mm-hmm. from doing something like that where you know um put a foveon sensor you know with a you know a lens adapter you know on it not not don't worry about it and do something revolutionary uh with the iphone there's a lot of iphone users that will be would get pretty excited if you built kind of a nice little form factor and the lcd and everything else is all built in and then what happens is you don't have to build an sdk because you, you just let any iphone manufacturer write different apps so the thing yeah. is you could buy an app you could buy separate applications that run that device you know and and people could just develop using you know you, you could create something of this is how you make calls to the to the uh you know the the sigma you know iphone camera and then you would just simply you know let developers develop it and and that open-ended that's a, that that open-ended would be pretty revolutionary and i think i don't think that it's something nikon and canon do would do because that's how they part of how they justify what their prices and justify everything else is that user experience they don't want to give that up necessarily but a company that's a little bit more on the outside, like, um, and I think, as I said, uh, the one that has the most interesting sensor, as far as that goes, that could possibly play with that as an experiment would be some, someone like Sigma. But it could be any of the outside, any of the other uh, manufacturers. That, they'd be the ones that I think would be the most likely to do it. What you're talking about, really, is is having the, the big camera manufacturers, like the Nikons and the Canons of the world, taking more of an Apple or or kind of an Apple approach, where you're building the hardware and putting an operating system on that hardware and making sure that they work really well together and then allowing apps, app developers to create software that runs on top of it, right? Well, and to be very clear, it would be very little, very, very little OS from the Sigma point of view I mean, or mm-hmm. from the camera manufacturer's point of view. It's really all you're doing is building hooks. You might build some mm-hmm. software. You would build some initial software that would do the controls of the camera, but really the, Euro, the OS for your camera is being built by the iPhone OS, so you're not really, from a camera manufacturer point of view, you don't have to deal with most of that. You're just like, you know, I get the information from the sensor. I can control focus. You know, it's all the basic stuff that you would have, but all the software of what you're going to do with that. You, of course, you want to build a version of, of that software to get started. But what you um, really, you know, what will happen is people will, I think, take massive advantage of it. You know, there's so many things that you could do. Once that once that little tie was connected, you might want to put little USB hooks in. You might want to put a couple other little things in there, but you would have very little OS that was built into the camera. The camera was really just designed to have the iPhone run it. You know, you would it wouldn't be runnable without it. But who cares? You've got whatever thirty million iPhones out there. You know, right. and, and Joseph, so, Joseph, what do you, what do you think? I mean, do you think that we're ever going to see that kind of uh, uh, going to see the camera manuf- manufacturers take a step back? to allow the world to develop operating systems for their devices, or are we just dreaming here? Well, no, I think Alex is on the right track, and he and Ron and I talked about that a bit, and I know that Ron's this is something Ron's a big supporter of as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that it is going to happen, but I also think Alex is right. It's not going to come from someone like Nikon or Canon. It's going to come from maybe a Sigma or maybe just a company we've never heard of before. Somebody listening to the show Anybody right now is gonna- wants to license a, imaging. You can buy imaging sensors. You can build the, the pieces of that. I mean, it's not something that someone else you know, couldn't an enterprising right. Chinese company or Japanese company could, you know, could pull off. Mm-hmm. Alex, let's go do it. Let's just do it. Come on, you and but me. So let's just make sure I understand. So Alex, you're saying Sigma would build a camera body that is open, that allows people to de- develop for it, but it would have an F mount, for example, for Nikon lenses. Would Nikon let them get away from that, get away with that though? I mean, come on. Why not just have it be a, a mount for the Sigma lenses? Because I have all Nikon lenses, and I'm not going to give them up. I have a There's significant a investment in Nikon lenses. I can't just jump to a different body right now. I'm not Scott Bourne. Right? You, I don't know if there's an adapter for Nikon to Sigma or not, but if I was Sigma, all I'd be doing is worrying about 
you know, being able to connect Sigma lenses. I mean, I wouldn't, I, you know, as, as that Sigma, that's part of the reason that you would do it, but it would get you a lot of press. And there's a lot of people who aren't attached enough to their lenses that, you know, this isn't, I think that the, the heavy Nikon, heavy Canon users may not do this, may not switch over. I know I would, I'd probably drop, you know, it'd be the big reason that I would, you know, drop what I had. If I, if I had complete control and I knew that people could develop for my, my phone, for my camera, mm-hmm. Um, I would drop Canon and Nikon in a heartbeat. But is it is it important? Is it that important to you I'm to so, have that customizability? I mean, it's it's all about the photography in the end, right? I mean, the geeking so out stuff is fun, but no, you want to be you want to take pictures, and you know, in the end, being able to peek and poke and do all that kind of stuff is secondary to the actual taking of the photo, getting it into the computer, and editing it. All this other stuff is sort of ancillary, right? I, there's just so many. I mean, it's like an, almost a daily process for me that I run into something that I can't do. That, that, my, yeah. that, my, that my camera can't do that I want it to do. And I know that all it is is software. That's the, right. that's the thing that makes me upset is, is that the camera mechanically can do everything that I want it to do. It simply can't. Like, for instance, you know, I was talking to someone uh, at one of the booths and, you know, the Casio, you know, these high speed uh, cameras, 1,000 frames a second and 120 frames a second, 240 frames a second. Well, the secret is, is it's the same chip. The Sony chip, <laughs> you know, it's being used in like four or five different cameras. Four or five different manufacturers are using the same chip. And Casio and, and now Samsung are the only ones that are doing high speed. You know, and, and the thing is, is, you know, and they're just simply taking advantage of what the chip can do. So my whole thing is, is that, you know, just let us stop worrying about it. Stop worrying about what we want. You don't have to. All you have to do is give us a solid piece of hardware um, that, that lets us connect to, you know, all the standard things that we're used to as a camera Instead of having an LCD screen there, just have a little thing we can slide our iPhone into, you know, and, and, um, and, then, and, and then people can develop for your camera and, and really get it, you know, and, and the key is, is now you're making, you're making many, many different cameras uh, with the same body because the thing is, is, you know, people can, you know, get all those pieces and you could have, you know, if, if you were smart, you'd probably build something where developers who want to develop for the camera are going to pay you some little bit. <laughs> could a, could a red do this? Could could red be the the camera company that jumps in and and takes no, the they, world by storm with this configurable camera? You could, but I don't think they will. I mean, I think that they have kind of a, their own business model, and they haven't to date really spent a lot of time uh, making you know SDKs available you know to to their cameras. I mean, something that we'd love to do too is run a red from our iPhone. Um, yeah. you know, and so that's something since we, since we haven't seen that to to date, I don't expect it. I don't expect red would be the company to do it. I I really think that that Sigma would be the perfect one because I, I think that in my opinion, their bodies are largely experimental. I don't know if they're really making that much, you know, impact, you know, when you look at them, I mean, they're great cameras and the Foveon sensor is really cool and they've never, but it's kind of a, in some ways a test technology in my opinion. I mean, because they just, they're kind of on the outside, they have to do something revolutionary. They have to do something really different. And the Foveon sensor hasn't proven to be enough. And it's a very compelling sensor. It's clearer. It's, you know, and, and and there's a lot of reasons that it makes sense. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah. or a, or a a Sony, a Sony could come in and kind of redeem themselves and take a little bit of their market share back from other people who have been stealing it. The larger companies that are really dedicated to all this, I just think that Sony, too much of their their business model is wrapped around their uh, too much of their business model is wrapped uh, around their software. And same with Samsung, same with Olympus, same with the only one that I can think of that, that really would have the, the most to gain. And that's because they, they own, they make a lot of lenses um, because this is, this is a body that, that basically is a lens, you know, holder, you know, it's a sensor and lens holder. So you want to find a company that's making their own sensors or has their own sensors and is making their own lenses. And um, so Sigma would be the one that would make the most sense or, uh, Joseph and I, 
and Ron and you. <laughs> and we'll just there you go. This. There you go. Now, Joseph, I've ruined, Joseph, I've ruined all uh, the patentability of it because it's, I've, I've talked about it live. So, you know, we're going to have to act quickly. There you go. It's, <laughs> it's out there. It's in the universe. Joseph, uh, before we leave this topic, I want to I want to have you as a working pro photographer describe what your ideal utopian digital SLR is. You know, with oh, all the stuff that we're talking about, what's the camera that you would just, you know, you, you'd put on the pillow next to you if you could have it? <laughs> God, you couldn't have given me that question before the show, could you? Um, no, of course not. <laughs> describe it. What is it? Well, it, it is. It's the flexibility. That's the problem. Is it, That's the challenge. It's not a single thing. It's not a camera that does this, 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 and this. It's a camera that I want to be able to do things that I haven't thought of yet. I want to be out in the field and be able to go, gosh, you know, I want to be able to do an HDR time-lapse video combination thing because I've never thought of trying to do it until just this very moment. And so chances are the camera isn't built to do that. And if the camera was built to do that, everybody would be doing it. So mm-hmm. if I've got a, a lens and a sensor and an interface for my iPhone and I can just kind of program it to do whatever I want or um, you know, use some software that someone else has developed in some ways they haven't come up with or hire a developer to write the software myself because I can, that's genius. Yeah. All right. We'll leave it at that. Um, the next thing that I wanted to chat about with you guys is something near and dear to my heart. And it's, uh, it's a story that ran in popular photography magazine and it was titled, what is a photograph? And it, it basically it was exploring where is the line between digital photography and actual photography? And it was pretty interesting that a, a magazine that's been around for, what, 73 years, like popular photography, is still trying to figure out what a photograph is. And because it changes, right? So that line is moving. So I, I know you guys may have had the chance to look at the notes in here. I wanted to just jump into it without beating the dead horse of should you manipulate photos and shouldn't you? Uh, which we've talked about on the show ad nauseum, but more from the tack of what is a photograph? So when when does a does a jumble of pixels go from being uh, a, an accurate representation of what was there to not so or to not being a photograph? Joseph, I'm going to throw it to you first. When when can you make the the determination that something has is no longer a photograph and is now an illustration? I think you, you hit it when you said, is it a representation of what was there? And that's journalism, right? If it's a straight photograph, unmanipulated, uh, that's a journalistic image. It's a capture of what was there, what you actually saw, what actually happened. Anything beyond that, when you start enhancing the colors, even dodging and burning things, um, you know, adding things that weren't there, removing things that were, then you're getting into manipulation. And to a degree, it is an illustration. It's still a photograph. There's no question about whether it started as a photo or ended as a photo. It is a photograph, but mm-hmm. it does definitely take on that, that essence of illustration as soon as you touch the mouse to anything on it. But, I, but I'd argue that you know, when, when we say uh, an accurate representation of what was there, now that was sort of bait because it's like, how can you accurately represent what was there? Because our choices, when we put, say, a you know, a long focal length, focal length lens on the camera or choose a shallow depth of field, the blur of the background is not actually what your eye was seeing as they, they, they called that out in an article, you know, that we're talking about here. You know, so how, how do you how do you reconcile that and say that, you know, even though I blurred the background out on this shot just to make the person stand out more, you know, this is still real. You know, how, how do you how do you draw that line? I think that one thing that we have to I mean, we can talk about photography, but. Uh, you know, and whether we're manipulating the, what what hit the camera or whatever, but we have to make sure that we're clear that we 
every time we pull the trigger on our camera, we've manipulated reality. Mm-hmm. You know, so so it you know the, the the direction that we pointed the camera, whether the camera was higher than the crowd or lower than the crowd, uh, how the person was lit, uh, you know where you know who's involved and how we frame it. All of that is as much a manipulation as color changes and, and dodging and burning and everything else of, of what's actually happening. And, and, you know, I've seen this a lot in being in countries that are being reported on, you know, in Africa and watching people who are journalists who are taking photos. But by moving the camera up, for instance, and looking down, the crowd looks a lot bigger than it actually was, you know. And so the so there's all these things that, you know, we you know, the moment we take the picture, we're, we're manipulating reality. And so this isn't like a, there's no hard edge. There's kind of a gradient of, you know, how much we're going to manipulate reality uh, in, in post-production. Yeah. I and mean, what, what kind of springs into my mind, I was reading an article, um, I think it was by David Hobby, you know, the, the strobist. And um, he was describing how when he was doing newspaper photojournalism, how you can, you know, of course, and we all know this, depending on the angle that you shoot your subject at, you can you can just subliminally say that they're nice or evil, you know? So if you shoot them from a well, you kind saw the of... Jill Greenberg, the Jill Greenberg uh, shot of, of uh, McCain, right? Yeah, exactly. But that was that was an extreme thing. You know, but this is, like, more subtle. If you, you know, yeah, but if you're shooting, like, from a low angle at somebody and you want to make, you know, a, 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 a person look more imposing and you just, you know, stand them there and shoot from a low angle, put them close to the lens, they're going to look larger than life rather if you, than if you shot down on them and had them look up at the camera, then they look sort of subordinate to the viewer of the image. So things like that are even subjective. You know, how do you, which one is real? You know, so it's it, like you were saying, Al, it's a, it's a it's a question of the photographer. When you click that shutter or even before you click that shutter, when you make decisions about your ISO, about your lens, about, you know, shutter speed, all that stuff. When you make decisions on what you're going to take a picture of, I mean, and I think that it's important for viewers, our viewers and our listeners, uh, anybody who is viewing media is to keep that in the back of their head, that that the articles that were chosen for the front page of CNN and the pictures that were taken for those and the way those pictures were taken and, and, and how they were and possibly how they were processed, all of that is, is, a, is colored by the people that worked on it. There's, there's right. nothing bad about that. It's not a conspiracy. It's just mm-hmm. that you just need to understand that it's, not, it's also not uh, ob- objective reality, which is probably impossible. Yeah, exactly. You see a shot of a politician and the headline is, you know, so and so is embattled, and they choose a shot of the politician looking sad and worried. Right? It, whether or not that was <laughs> that's a shot of the person that's actually embattled, it's just them. It's the the photo editor. They chose to use that shot, and now you think, oh my god, look at him. He's worried. Uh, you know, we're in trouble. You know, or vice versa. So and so, you know, is doing a great job and is is kicking everything out of the park, and you see the smiling person with their family and all this stuff. It's all, it's in, especially in photojournalism, it's placement of the image in context with the actual story. So how do you, you know, how do you reconcile that? I think that there is no answer to all this. So when, when, when and the only place uh, that this really when, matters, I mean, the only place that this really matters is that anyone really cares about this is photojournalism, because once you move yeah. into uh, advertising art, it's not even oh, yeah. close to Right. Oh yeah, all bets are off. When in photo in, in in photo illustration or art, then it's all interpretation. Or it's, advertising. You know, yeah. They're advertising, yeah. It was the same thing, you know. So when it's all interpretation, it's what the artist or the art director wanted, and it's what you what what the the customer or the client wants to, in order to sell their uh, their product. So it's it's a uh, your the photographer and the, the Photoshop artist or whomever 
are now client or are agents of creating the product for that customer. When you're we, doing we, photo, we were, we were, photo you know, journalism, you know it's gone a, just, a long way when when uh, we were taking a picture of someone who's pretty prominent, and uh, and and he looked up and, and he had some issues with his hair; it just wasn't quite right, and there was a couple mm-hmm. of blotches that he had gotten when he was on vacation. And he's like, "You can just get, you can just Photoshop that out, can you? You know, just just sort that out later. You know, like I'm in a rush, I need uh, to take a photo, just sort that out." And and we we're like, "Yep, no, no problem." You know, you know, and uh, and but but you know for. But but when you have the person who's th- having the picture taken of them understand the reality, I think that's uh, you realize you've reached a certain point. Yeah, Joseph, you manipulate every shot you take, don't you? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no, I, I, just, I wanted to add in that, that we, we have to consider that the cameras today are simply incapable of capturing what the human eye sees. Right, the human eye has much more dynamic range. We see a much wider angle. We can focus on things without having to technically focus on it, right? We, we don't see the background as blurry, but if we look at a person, the background becomes irrelevant. We may not see what's going on there. And that's what we're doing by choosing a lens with a shallow depth of field or by manipulating the camera angle. We're not ma- manipulating the environment. The environment hasn't changed. It's just perception of it. And the human eye does that you know, constantly. Your brain is constantly doing that, making those decisions of what you want to see and what you want to focus on and what you want to ignore in the scene. And as the photographer, we're just we're making that choice because the camera can't. And yeah. especially once you've captured a single frame, you know, a, a different from video where you're watching a scene unfold before you, you're looking at a single frame of time. Even the human eye doesn't capture things in a single frame and, and hold on to that moment forever and ever. It yeah. just doesn't work that way. It's just, we get it's closer a very to that stuff with, with HDR, right? Because it's it's more, you know, if if you're not pushing it to the extreme edges, it the whole. One of the ideas of HDR is to more accurately represent the scene as our eyes see it, right? So you get, but you even get there, we don't necessarily see it all at the same time, right? You think about your your eye; you can look into a dark shadow and see details there, and then instantly, you know, in a fraction of a second, move your eyes to look out the window, and you're looking at something that's twenty stops different, and your eye almost instantly adjusts for that. But you're not seeing both things at the exact same time. And in an HDR yeah. image, you are. So even that's a bit of a, oh, a twist actually, on it. So I want to distinguish. We need to distinguish what an H, a difference between HDR and tone mapping. So the HDR is holding all that information that is, uh, can be a very, very, very wide gamut. A tone map is what we – a lot of people start thinking about what you're describing there as a tone map, which is that we're going to take all that wide gamut information and squeeze it together. Uh, and, and those are two different things because the HDR itself is, you know, can have 22, 30, 40 stops of information. You're not going to see it all at one time. You have to be sitting there you, and you can sit in Photoshop with a raw HDR and just simply go through the exposure and see everything from if, if someone's taken 10 exposures or 15 exposures of the of the scene, you can get to a point where you can see the details in the filaments and you can come back and see the details in the, uh, you know, in the shadows and, and there's a smooth gradient between any of those. You're deciding how that's going to happen. But what most people think of when you do a search on the web for HDR, what you're seeing is a tone map. You're seeing a comp- a, 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 a uh, exposure compressed version of an HDR. Because I think that a lot, of, a lot of times people get those two confused. And so they think HDR is a certain way. HDR just gives you all the information in one place. But Very when you're true. looking at a raw HDR, you're not... You don't see everything at one time. You see what you, what you see is a sli- the slice that your LCD screen can um, show you at that moment. And I would, uh, you know, just speaking of HDR, if you want to learn more about that stuff, definitely head over to Trey Radcliffe's blog uh, or his website at stuckincustoms.com. He's got a tutorial, a free tutorial up there for, uh, for folks to download and or walk through if you want to learn how to do HDR photography and learn more about that stuff. All right. Uh, and the last story that I want to chat about today is about um, 
stock photography and how some people are misusing it. Uh, apparently, uh, the uh, the city behind InfiniteHorizons.ca chose to use photos of people who aren't actually from that area <laughs> on their website. So, you know, aside from all the, the, of course, you shouldn't be doing that kind of thing. You know, uh, Alex, <laughs> I have to admit. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So here's the deal. I use a lot of stock photography. I mean, I, I, I should own stock in iStock photo for the number of stock photos that we use. You know, uh, you know, we just, it's just this constant flow of, of stuff that we're, we're constantly using in this area. And if you just want to tell an idea, there is no reason for you. Now, if you're saying come to Canada and you're saying, and you're showing pictures of Europe, uh, that's one thing, but then that's not what was happening here. What was happening here was that they were, they were, it was people, you know, it was just like, it was just some people to be put in the photo. It's kind of like, you know, and, and to, out of 90 photos, you know, 77 were shot, you know, in the location. So there were 13 yeah. of some idea that they want to have or some warm fuzzy that they want to put in there. And, and, I, and I have to admit that I, when I saw this, I saw web technician calls, you know, calls this, calls them to the mat or whatever on this. And I was like, in other news, web technician is now looking for a job. Because I can tell you right now, you know, I was like, I was like, cause you know, web technicians in this economy are so hard to find, you know, and, yeah. and, I, and I, and I have to say that if, if someone decided they wanted to go public on the fact that I was that you know that, that we were using some stock photos for a handful of people that have nothing to do with what we're trying to sell people, you know yeah. they would be looking for a job. <laughs> so you know it, you know it, it's just I, I just thought so it you're was, you're on the side of the of the of using whatever imagery you want, whether it's no, from I mean, that area. If or you're not. saying buy our house and you're showing a different house, or come to our city and you're showing a different city, I I, I that's not you can't do that. But what I'm mm-hmm. saying is, is that if, if you're just talk, if you're just having a you know some warm fuzzy picture of, of of a person that's there, I mean it just it's just an image. You're never going to meet them. Right. You know, you know, Joseph, it's, it's just, Joseph it where, where do you fall on this? I know you 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 don't do a whole lot of like. Well, you do do a, a fair amount of uh, like location and travel type stuff. So, what, what would you ever allow your images to be used out of context? As long as it's not misrepresenting. The image, sure. Well, why not? If it's a picture of a, you know, a couple on a park bench enjoying a, you know, a picnic together and it happens to be taken in Canada, but they're advertising something in France. If it's an unremarkable park bench in an unremarkable park, no one's going to look at it and go, wait, that's not France. That was taken in Canada. Then so what? It's, it's like Alex said, it's the warm fuzzy. It's the feeling. It's it's about the emotion that you're conveying, not about the location. Mm. I mean, they they made it clear that the photos that were used in this were not were definitely not at all what they were trying to advertise, not at all what they were talking about. And so it wasn't, you know, this was just, it was people and the backgrounds were specifically not, you know, I'm sure that they picked them that way, which is that, and I'm sure whoever picked it just went through there and just said, well, you're not going to see the background. What we're talking about is the locations, not yep. the people. It doesn't really matter. And, and so, and, and someone who thought that they were more, you know, they were higher up on the food chain than they really were and decided to make a big stink about it, you know, and, and um, you know, and I'm sure that they should, they're brushing up their resume. <laughs> you know <laughs> all right with that let's uh let's uh jump into today's inter or this episode's interview segment with a gentleman that goes by the name of sill arena i'm here with mr sill arena uh you may have heard his name or you may have seen his picture but he's a uh He's a photographer that's based down in Paso Robles, California. He's uh, he's known for a lot of things, one of which is some amazing workshops that he was throwing, uh, that he's thrown with some names like David Hobby and uh, Joe McNally, all those guys. Uh, and as you might imagine, 
based on those names, still is is sort of a fan of doing off camera and maybe on camera small strobe lighting. So Sill has agreed to come on the show to talk about that and talk about some techniques and some of the things that he's doing in the world of small speed light lightings, particularly with Canon's Canon speed light. So Sill Arena, welcome to the show. Hey Frederick, it's great to be here. This is this is great. So I'm a I'm a fan of yours, of course, and I'm also a fan of just being able to do more with less and being portable and, you know, my military background, we had to be portable with everything, right? So the the idea, and I, yeah, I'm i a big fan of David Hobbies as well, and, I, and of course, Joe McNally, and I've seen some of the things that they're able to do with small strobes. Let's kick this interview off with just, um, if you could explain your sort of theory behind why someone would want to use small speed lights versus the big pro photo packs that, you know, that everyone's using in the, in the studios? Okay. Great, great question. Um, the first thing to remember, it's kind of like in a way talking about a box of wrenches and sometimes you need a big wrench and sometimes you need a couple of small wrenches. And it's not necessarily that it's pro photo seven B's versus, um, speed lights. They all have their places. They all do different things. But here's the amazing thing about the kind of revolution that's happening in the world of small flash. Because of digital technology, the cameras are now talking to the speed lights, and the speed lights are flashing out codes to each other and communicating. And literally in the blink of an eye, a digital camera and a group of speed lights are able to communicate together and do things that, frankly, a studio pack flash like a pro photo or an alien B or any of those other types of flashes they can't do so with small flash we're able to travel light we're able to move quickly but we're also able through some things like high speed sync to achieve things that are not possible with those big studio systems like oh, so so go into that a little bit with the high speed sync i've seen i know the nikon and the canons both both are capable of doing that describe exactly what high speed sync is Okay. Um, well, if you're a Canonista, you'll call it high-speed sync. If you're an Iconian, um, you'll probably know it as auto FP sync, and FP stands for focal plane. So here's the thing. A quick lesson about how our, our digital single-lens reflex cameras work. They have two curtains in front of the digital sensor, and that's essentially the shutter mechanism. So when the camera's ready to fire, the first curtain is closed. The second curtain is completely open. When the first curtain flies across the sensor, the sensor is blasted with light, and then the second curtain closes. And the difference between the two shutters, or the two curtains, is effectively the shutter speed. Now, to get a flash, whether it's a speed light or a studio strobe, to sync with the camera, the flash has to fire at a point when the first curtain is completely across the sensor, but before the second curtain has begun to close. Mm. A lot of people, if they've not been paying attention and shooting a manual flash and they just turn their camera to say a thousandth of a second, they fire, the flash goes off, and they look at their image and there's a really dark band across the frame. That dark band is created because the second curtain was already in motion when the flash fired. It was literally obscuring a portion of the digital sensor. So that being said, that's why 
Um, Nikons have a sync speed of, say, 250th. Canon says their sync speed is a 200th, although in my world, my Canons are largely uh, syncing at about 160th of a second. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens in high-speed sync, which is something you really can only do with dedicated speed lights. So, for instance, well, I could take uh, a Nikon speed light and put it on my Canon flash and fire it in manual mode. I couldn't get it to operate in high-speed sync and vice versa with Canon speed lights on Nikon bodies. So in a high-speed sync, what happens is the camera literally changes the way that the flash is firing. And rather than fire in one really big burst, what it's doing is turning that speed light for a fraction of a second into an ultra-fast strobe light. Now, I was at Radio Popper last summer, and these guys who developed some amazing radio triggers have state-of-the-art oscilloscopes. And I said to them, can we put a flash into high-speed sync and using your oscilloscope measure how many times it turns on and off in a second during high-speed sync? So they said, sure, we've been thinking about doing that ourselves. So a bunch of flash geeks, we all got around the oscilloscope in the laboratory there at Radio Popper. And um, the answer to that question is it turns on and off 40,000 times a second. Wow. Now, it's only going for a fraction of a second. So it's, but the point is, even if you're shooting, uh, even if it goes on and off 5,000 times, that's truly incredible. We could see it in the oscilloscope. It would literally go on and off and on and off. So what happens is high-speed sync turns the speed light into a continuous light source, just like the sun or just like a light bulb in your office is a continuous light source. It turns that speed light into a continuous light source for a very short period of time. What that means is that we're then able to shoot at shutter speeds that are much, much faster than we would normally. For instance, a lot of people, if they know any of my photographs, they probably know my Smashing Pumpkin photographs. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now, actually. <laughs> okay, well, that's, that's my son, Vin, the, middle, the middlest of my three boys. And um, so that was set up largely as an experiment to see if radio poppers could work, one, with multiple speed lights, and two, in high-speed sync. So I conned Canon out of a dozen 580EXs, and I conned Radio Popper out of a dozen of their first-generation, um, their P1 receivers. And literally, Frederick, I said, okay, what can we do to test this, but in an entertaining, informative kind of way? And, of course, being the dad of three boys, it was shortly after Halloween, and I said, anybody want to go out and smash the heck out of some pumpkins? <laughs> So that was the genesis behind that shot and, or that series. And what we found, and it, it's all up on my blog, Pixelated, what we found literally looking at those pumpkin seeds flying out of, out of the pumpkins is that at a 3,200th of a second, some of them were still blurry. But at a 4,000th of a second, they were tack sharp. So, you know, I, and one, I was stunned. I thought, oh, you know, a thousandth of a second, two thousandth of a second, that'll freeze action. But when you're talking about radically fast action, like that explosive seed coming out of a smashed pumpkin, you've got to go for a super fast shutter speed. And so the only way to do that with flash, if you're using a focal plane camera, a, a DSLR, is to shoot it with high speed sync. Yeah. Now, now so we, we, 
just came back from from the this week in photography Joshua tweet Joshua Tree workshop, and we had um, a bunch of students out there. And we were experimenting with with strobe and mixing strobe with with ambient or daylight, you know, to to see what kind of effects we could get. And one of the questions that continually came up was people just trying to wrap their mind around the whole idea of. Uh, when, you know, the whole idea of what light value the aperture is controlling versus what the shutter speed is controlling. And how do you get, how, if you could explain from a Silarina standpoint, how you get your brain around what those two values are doing when you're using flash photography, that'd be great. Okay. All right. So here's the thing, um, to understand about flash when that, Flash when your speed light is at full power, for instance, which is the which is the slowest um, flash duration you have. Um, quick sidebar: the power of a speed light is really a function of how long it's on, not not how bright it's flashing. The, the, it's either on or off. It's either bright or it's not bright. So at full power, your speed light might be flashing at say for a thousandth of a second or fifteen hundredth of a second. Whereas at minimum power, it might be at a 20,000th of a second or a 30,000th of a second. So even at full power, at a thousandth of a second, in normal sync mode, if your camera's syncing at 160th or a 200th or 250th, it really doesn't matter where in that 200th of a second the flash fires because it's still only a thousandth of a second. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if you're at your max sync speed or if you're shooting, frankly, at a half a second. The flash is still on only for a thousandth of a second. So if you understand that, you'll understand why the shutter speed has virtually no effect on the flash. The shutter's open for a second. The flash is still on for a thousandth of a second. If the shutter is open for a two hundredth of a second, the flash is still on just for a thousandth of a second. So the only way to control a flash, assuming that you're not moving the flash or changing the power, but the only way in the camera mechanism to control that then is through aperture. Because obviously, a flash that fires at a thousandth of a second at f8 is going to let more light through the lens than if you have that lens stopped down to, say, f16. Yep. So it's pretty simple to understand, okay, shutter speed controls ambient, flash control, or aperture controls flash. Of course, what people then get hung up on is, all right, in fact, shutter speed and aperture actually control ambient. So it's not like you can say it's just shutter speed that controls ambient and just aperture that controls the flash. Yeah. Okay. So then um, put, putting that into real-world context, if you say you're, you're on a beach and you're photographing a model on a beach and the sun is setting, so you got a beautiful sort of orange cast over a, a sort of a cloudy sky with the water and all that, and you have a model in the foreground – you want her exposed properly, and you want that background to also render. How do you yeah. do that? Okay. So here's my basic workflow. The first thing I always try to solve when I'm on location is what exposure do I want for my ambient? Because I frankly can't do anything about the ambient. 
So I've got to dial in um, my aperture and my shutter, or if I'm using, if I'm shooting an automatic, which I do quite often, an aperture priority automatic, I've got to come to some semblance of where I want that ambient sunlight to be. And then, and only then, once I've sorted out what that exposure is, will I turn on my flash. One of the biggest problems that uh, people just coming to speed lighting face is they try to do it all at one time. It's like, okay, I'm going to solve my ambient and my flash. So I basically get that sunset, that backlight, let's say, to where I want it to be. And once I get that, when I'm taking those test shots, the, the subject is good, probably going to be a silhouette in front of my lens, which is okay. And then I'll bring the light to the model and I'll work on my exposure. So my normal operating mode, I typically shoot in Canon's ETTL mode Mm -hmm. and the camera's in aperture priority or AV. And so the combination of the two is I will use my flash exposure compensation in my camera to control the level of the speed light going up or down. Now, if somebody is shooting Nikon, they're going, wait a minute, that doesn't work. And there's a difference between the Canon and the Nikon systems. In Canon, the exposure compensation controls the camera, and flash exposure compensation controls the speed light independently of each other. In Nikon, they're connected. So if you're talking to a Nikon shooter, they're going to give you a bit different advice than if you're talking to a Canon shooter, but in my world, being a Canon shooter. So I'll use that flash exposure compensation to dial the speed light up or down to get the um, light where I want it on the model. And that's frankly one of the reasons why I love shooting in ETTL because it gives me that wireless control where I can say I need more or less light on that model. I don't have to run over to a light stand and start pushing buttons or turning dials to change the power setting. Now, is there is there ever a reason why you wouldn't shoot an ETTL? Mm-hmm. There's lots of reasons. <laughs> um, you thought that was going to be a longer question, didn't you? <laughs> no, no, no. You just caught me mid-sip. Um, um, there's lots of reasons. And here's the, here's the most important reason um, if you're starting down the path as a speed lighter, I don't care whether you're shooting Nikon or Canon or Sony or just a hodgepodge of gear that you've collected at garage sales, you really need to shoot in manual until you can get your head around what's going on with the camera and what's going on with the flash. So many people buy all this high-tech gear, and let's face it, it, it comes with a pretty expensive price tag. Yeah. So somebody says, you know, I just paid 500 bucks for the speed light. I'm going to put it right on top of the camera because that's where the hot shoe is. And I'm going to turn everything to auto and I expect to get a Joe McNally photo out of the camera. <laughs> and there's a tremendous amount of, of dissatisfaction and uh, disgust because they think because of the price tag that it should be capable of doing that kind of National Geographic cover shot in, in just one or two button pushes. Um, so manual is really, really important in terms of shooting um, or in terms of learning the basics of flash photography. Don't even go into ETTO until you can figure out and understand you know, what happens at full power, what happens at quarter, and what happens at 16th, and so on and so forth. Yep. Now, the other reason that I – the other time that I shoot manual – is if I'm like shooting tabletop, if I'm shooting still life, if I'm shooting anything where the relationship between the subject 
and the lights does not dramatically change. Like it's just, I'm not shooting a person. All right. Then I shoot manual quite a bit because it's really easy for me then to move the camera around and not have to worry about changing or having the camera recalculate the flash exposures. One of the challenges of ETTL, and that's the system where the camera basically says to the master flash or the flash, fire out a small, a low power burst. I'm going to take an exposure reading. Then I'm going to tell you what power setting to use. Then you set yourself to that power setting, and then I'm going to tell you when to fire, and we'll fire. So ETTL is wonderful if the relationship between the camera and the subject and the relationship between the subject and the lights is dynamic, like when you're shooting people. But if the relationship between the subject and the lights is static, then I would just use manual because I don't have to worry about um, moving the camera because every time you move the camera in ETTL, it's going to take a different exposure reading. So if you're shooting, for instance, a bride and a groom, and you're metering, uh, you compose so that most of the metering area is on the bride's dress, the camera's going to get one exposure, and then you recompose that frame, and it's going to look at the groom's tux, mm-hmm. and it's going to say, well, wait a minute, this is really dark, so I need more flash power. And all you did was swing your camera a few degrees to the right or left, and your flash is changing its power setting radically. And that's one of the challenges of ETTL. That's why people get freaked out about it. Yeah. But on the other hand, there, when you've got that dynamic situation, um, like, of, like at the beach where you're trying to go really fast, mm-hmm. ETTL is wonderful because I can use that flash exposure compensation to dial my speed light up or down. I'm still in control, but the camera's communicating those changes wirelessly for me. Now, Sil, are there any um, – in- and on the show, I, I hate to get into the whole Nikon versus Canon argument um, because, as I always say, it's it's not about the gear. It's about the, the final product or the photography or the art itself. But in terms of, of flash photography with these speed lights, especially these, these high-tech ones that can do all this magical stuff, um, are there any advantages of one platform over the other? Um, well, first off, let me say, Frederick, I totally, totally agree with you about it not being Nikon versus Canon. Um, you know, to be honest, largely the reason that I shoot Canon today is because 28 years ago when I was hauling off to Brooks Institute of Photography as, as a total noob to the world of photography, <laughs> Canon had just introduced the A1, which was the first camera that had both shutter priority and aperture priority automatic in the same camera. And I was like, oh, my God, if I get that camera, I will be the best photographer in the <laughs> I'll be a golden god. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that, you know. So anyway, so it's kind of like, okay. So I started with Canon 28 years ago and 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 never switched. And a lot of people have that way about their Nikon gear as well. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's kind of how I am. It's like whatever whatever fits your hand and your brain the best yeah. is what you should go with. Yeah, and, and I frankly, I also spent years shooting um, 4x5 view camera and 6x7 medium format roll film. Yep. So it's kind of like, you know, it really doesn't matter what brand of camera you're using because nobody cares about that. Ultimately, what they care about is the images. Because remember, the most important thing about photography, 
Your images go out into the world without you. You are not there to stand by them and say, well, yes, the sun was coming over the yard <laughs> on three degrees, and therefore I had to switch it into auto FP, blah, blah, blah. Yep. That message is never communicated. It's only what they see. So they don't care what brand of camera you shot with. Yeah, it kind of boils down to, oh, this picture sucks or it doesn't, right? Yeah. <laughs> so let me share this with you. Canon, um, and, I, and I, I've had the good fortune through the last three years to spend a lot of time um, – shooting with, and, and more importantly, in my case, working for Joe McNally. Um, and so I've, I've, I've kind of been to ground zero many, many times in terms of what's going on in the Nikon CLS system. Mm-hmm. And last summer, I think it was you know middle or late part of June, July, June or July, um, I posted a, a kind of what became an, a, a virally epic piece on Pixelated called my Canon Speedlight Wishlist. Mm. And... Um, Hey, wait, wait, what's your blog again? Just, just so people know. It's pixelated. It's P as in Paul, I-X, S as in Sam, Y-L-A-T-E-D.com, pixelated.com. It's a play on my name. Got it. So my Canon Speedlight wish list, after having um, spent eight days being like the Canon hands-on specialist with Joe McNally at Dobbs Ferry Workshops last summer, I came back with my head full of, all of these reasons that the Nikon system was better and different than the Canon system. And I put them up on Pixelated, and lo and behold, this post is, is, is continued to be one of the most widely read pieces I've ever written. And almost 300 photographers from around the world have chimed in and added comments um, as to what they think Canon should do in the future. But here's, here's really the backstory, in my opinion. Canon was the first to market with this ETTL, and in, in the Nikon world, it's called ITTL. Canon was first to market with it, and um, at the time that they introduced it 12, 14 years ago, truly revolutionary, then, of course, Nikon caught up. Well, sometimes it's much better to be second to the gate than first, and because of that, Nikon has, I think, done some really, really smart things. I'm a hardcore, dedicated, loyal Canon shooter, but I'm also a realist, and Nikon's user interface for their speed lights is easier to understand than Canon's. I think ultimately um, the systems by themselves, the gear by themselves in the hands of people who truly know how to use them, there's not that big a difference. Yeah, that's what I but, thought. Uh, but, uh, go ahead. But if you're somebody, you know, like 99% of the market um, who if you don't do something every week, you can't remember how to do it. Nikon system definitely has the advantage because it's an easier user interface. I'm, I'm literally talking about the screens and the buttons and the dials on the back of the flash. Yeah. So, you know, whoever, whichever of those two giants um, hires Steve Jobs to engineer the new generation of flash technology and make it, you know, make it Apple-esque, um, those will be the guys who clean up. It's funny you say that because uh, earlier in the episode that this interview was being inserted into, we uh, we were talking about um, how the iPhone should be just able to be clamped on to a camera and 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 let third parties kind of design the UI for these cameras instead of letting the camera fa- manufacturers do it do it yeah. because they clearly have proved that they have no clue in uni- user interface design. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. And the market, um, you know, mark my words, Frederick, I think that much of the innovation about digital cameras in the next handful of years will not come from Nikon and not come from Canon. I think it's going to come from 
um, you know, the, the, what we would consider to be like the, the third-party camera manufacturers, the guys who have nothing to lose and who therefore have no traditions to uphold. We're, we'll see cool things out of Panasonic and, and Sony and all the other guys besides Nikon and Canon. All right. So now, now, now that I got some of those fundamental questions out of the way, here's some questions that are specifically from me. These are my selfish questions. <laughs> so, so um, be... <laughs> You know, looking at your site, there's some amazing photography. I'm looking at speedlighting.com, the new site that you you just launched recently. So I'm looking at the the speedlighting.com site that you just launched recently. There is some amazing photography there that was done with a speedlight or with a series of speedlights. How or and is it possible to replicate studio lighting with small strobes? You know, I'm seeing models on your site. I'm seeing product photography i'm seeing food photography stuff that typically you would see shot in a in a giant studio with a gigantic softbox hanging over the you know the subject and all that stuff but you're doing it with these tiny strobes how do you do that um one you have a bunch of them um and by a bunch you know for me it's it's like four to six typically um that you just got to understand a, a speed light Nikon or Canon or any other brand essentially is a light source that is about has about the same amount of real estate as a handful of postage stamps. They're really small light sources, and because of that, you get you know huge directionality to light. You get it's easy to get really hard light out of a speed light, and it's really hard to get a soft light out of it. So I'm using a lot of um, diffusion panels. I love um, the Westcott Scrim Gym diffusion panels. I love Last Light's Skylight panels. So I'm shooting through those things a lot, particularly anything that goes into the studio. Um, I'm shooting with either or both of those systems working together. Um, You know, model photography, if there's anything... um, that the listener that I'd want every listener to understand about small flash. If you've only got one flash, you can create amazing light. But it's all about where you put that one flash you have that makes the difference. If you put it on top of your camera, you're going to get photos that look like they were made at the Department of Motor Vehicles driver's license department. Yeah. Okay. But if you by using um like the, the long, extra long ETTL cables at Flash Zebra cells, which has just become my, my favorite, favorite tool in the last six months. That, that cable enables me to move my speed light off the camera 20, up to 24 feet. It's a 24 foot long cable. And yet, because of the wiring in the cable, it maintains full ETTL communication. So if you've got one speed light, Man, that's a great, great tool to have because if you put the speed light, let's say we're doing a headshot, and one of the photos you saw in speed lighting was a portrait of a model with red hair, and um, that image was made with a single 580EX blowing through the, bla- the back of a Lastalite Easybox hot shoe. So it's a small hot shoe-based uh, softbox, say 20, 24 inches square. And the key to getting soft light is to put your light source just outside the frame of the camera. The viewer doesn't care whether that soft box is a half an inch outside the frame or three feet as long as it casts the quality of light that you need. They're not thinking about where that soft box is. 
So if you want really, really soft light, you push that soft box or that diffusion panel or whatever you're using to soften up that light, you push that right up to the edge of the camera frame. And that will help create that dramatic fall off. The farther back your light source is, the harder it becomes. I mean, you think about it, the sun is a huge light source. But because of Earth's distance from the sun, it seems relatively small, which is why our shadows in the middle of the day have really, really hard edges. And yet if a bank of clouds floats over, those um, clouds effectively become the light source. And relative to you standing on the sidewalk, they're huge. The light comes at you from a bunch of angles, and therefore the shadows are much softer. So oftentimes, it's really not about how many speed lights you've got at your disposal. I mean, the reality is many of those images um, that you saw on, on speed lighting could have, made with, could have been made with $10 shop lights from Home Depot. It's not so much about the light as about how it's modified between um, the subject and the source of the light itself. Now, now Syl, have you, have you used those Hanel light modifiers? And are you familiar with those? Yeah, um, Dave Honnell's a friend, and um, you know it's one of those things. We so many of us, and I know I wasn't the first. Like, oh God, why didn't I think of that? Um, <laughs> yeah, I did actually say that. <laughs> yeah, you know, every uh, let's be honest. I mean, people who've used the Honnell system, um, and the people who are now knocking off the Honnell system in the marketplace with cheap alternatives, mm-hmm. um, are all saying, "God, I wish I thought of this." And and Dave Honnell is a, a globetrotting photojournalist like so many great users of Small Flash. I'm not being among that group. I'm not a globetrotting photojournalist. Um, so Dave Honnell went around the world using Small Flash. And interestingly enough, back in the day, um, Dave was actually mixing. He would shoot, as I recall, he would shoot Nikon. Dave, you're going to get me in trouble if I get this wrong, I know. But I think he would shoot Nikon speedlights on Canon bodies. <laughs> um, and I asked him one time, he said, well, that's just the way I always did it. So um, anyway, Honnell modifiers are great. Because um, here's a lesson I learned from Joe McNally. And I don't think, love Joe, he's one of the smartest guys I know. I don't think he thought of this either. He got it from somebody else who got it from somebody else. And and that's the way the world of photography is. I mean, we all stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. And Joe said once in a workshop that I took from him, he said, if you want to make something look interesting, don't light all of it. And it's like, oh, my God. You know, that's, that's the other thing that we do with speed lights is we put them on top of our camera. We put them off camera. But we still blast them equally at our subject and at the background. Yeah. So what the Honnell system is so good at is limiting the field of where the speed light goes. Some modifiers are used because they make the speed light seem really, really big. The Honnell modifiers, for the most part, are used because they make the speed light, um, the, the, the output from the speed light, they contain it to a very, very small area. Um, you know, For instance, one of my favorite um, Honnell pieces is that 8-inch snoot. And you throw that on a speed light and you make a, t- a long tube out of it. And all of a sudden, your speed light is like just perfectly focused on somebody's face, but it's not illuminating their shoulders. And more importantly, it's not illuminating the background. So you've got the exposure set for their face and everything else falls off to deep shadow. And all of a sudden, you've got really, really interesting light. That's very cool. And for folks that are wondering, 
what the heck is this Honol Photo lighting system? Um, just, you can check it out at Honol Photo, H-O-N-L-P-H-O-T-O.com. And uh, basically, it's a series of light modifiers that attach to your camera or your to your strobe with a little Velcro, Velcro strip. And it uh, gives you all sorts of power in terms of directing that light wherever you want it to go. Now, so um, speaking of being able to control your, your strobes, you mentioned having a, uh, a TTL cable. What about the Pocket Wizards, the mini TTL or T- mini TT1 system that they have? Have you played around with that at all for going wireless? Um, I, I have to confess, I have not, um, but not because I didn't try. Um, the folks at Pocket Wizard, who I think the world of, I think that, that their, their manual radio triggers are absolutely brilliant. Um, they've now made two attempts to get me um, the mini and the flex system, and including a box of gear that's sitting just a few feet away from me now. And um, they didn't send me all the parts so that I could, they sent me the transmitter, but not the receivers. Um, and first, first one's free. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I, and, and, but let me, let me suffice it to say, um, I'm a, I can, I'm a huge, huge fan and admirer of their competitor, Radio Popper. I mean, that's no secret. I was an early adopter of Radio Popper. Um, I did the Smashing Pumpkins shoots with Radio Popper technology. I've used Radio Poppers and a, a number of other radical shoot environments, such as like shooting a, a model who's standing out in the middle of a river, mm-hmm. where the speed lights are on C stands, also out in the middle of the river, and I'm also out in the middle of the river. So nobody was really in a position to move around. And the backstory, I think, is that Radio Popper got to the gate first, and they found the easiest solution and then patented that solution. And I honestly think that Pocket Wizard um, came to the field of radio-controlled ETTL units second and said, well, we can't go down that road because it's been patented, so we have to find a different approach. And like I said, I really, really like Pocket Wizard. Um, it's obvious that they dominate the radio trigger market from, I mean, you know, the, the best photographers in the world all carry Pocket Wizard manual radio transmitters. But since, uh, you know, it's been a year since I originally talked to the, the guys at Pocket Wizard about the Mini and the Flex. And um, I just have my doubts. I mean, I'm looking forward to the day when I can bolt it on, but they just emailed me this morning and, and frankly, they said, yeah, we have. Um, this radio shield, you know, that we're working on to help. They assert that Canon speed lights emit some sort of radio interference. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe they do and maybe they don't. But I will say my experience is that even the the, the, the rudimentary first generation radio poppers work through that just fine. Hmm. Um, so I don't know. I really and, and it's kind of like Nikon and Canon again. Yeah. I'm really glad that Pocket Wizard is in this market, and I don't doubt that they eventually will get a system that is very, very competitive with Radio Popper. And kind of like Aperture and Lightroom, Canon and Nikon, it's really great for all photographers who are interested in using this kind of technology to have two giants. In the case of Radio Popper, they're not giants. They're just some really innovative young guys. But it really helps to have that competitive technology in the marketplace because it it makes for better solutions for all the photographers eventually. All right, so let's let's take a couple of questions from Twitter. I put out the request uh, earlier this afternoon asking folks to 
questioned Silarina about flash uh, photography, and these are some of the questions that came in. The first one is from Pom Ranka, and he says, How can a flash help with college soccer games at night under lights when I'm on the... Uh, when I'm right on the sideline. I, I hope he's not one of the parents of a child that I've coached soccer in the last six years. <laughs> so, I, with the three arena boys, soccer has been a mainstay of uh, household athletics for many, many years. Excellent. So in having shot a bit of soccer, um, it's really hard to shoot and coach at the same time, by the way. Um, but having shot a bit of it, my first suggestion would be Think of using your speed light on camera, um, and if you're in an ETTL environment, I would dial it down like a full stop through flash exposure compensation, and basically use that speed light as uh, David Hobby would call it as on-axis fill, so that if a player's coming down the sideline and he's predominantly or she's predominantly backlit by the stadium lights, you're going to get really cool light off of that player's you know, head and shoulders. Effectively, the stadium lights become rim lights, mm. but you're still going to need flash. And so um, as a, you're still going to need fill light. You know, a, a, another option, but it's completely radical, is um, if you had a spot where you could bolt down a couple of speed lights and you were working in a, a wireless environment, and focus those speed lights out through zooming or other, you know, grid modifiers or whatever on into a specific spot. Then, when a player, when the action passed through that field of fire that you had pre predetermined, yeah, then you could have really cool light. I mean, that's more easily done, for instance, in basketball games than on a soccer field. Yeah, when they set up the the strobes on the rim to get the layup shots and all that, right? Exactly, or you know, the Dave Black will bolt lights up into the roof of the of the Coliseum or whatever. But those, by the way, are not speed lights. Um, so those are some ideas. Uh, it, it is a really, really challenging um, environment to shoot sports at night in a brightly lit stadium. Um, and I've been to a few Cal Poly men's soccer team games, and I know how rough and fast those games can get. So I'm not sure I'd want to bolt down any gear near the sidelines. Yeah. All right, here's another question in from Stephanie Mee. Stephanie says, what is the best way to start flash photography or, or to get started in flash photography? Um, she's not sure of how to, uh, how to throw a hat in the ring there. So what, what's your advice to Stephanie? I, I, love, I love this question, Stephanie, and, and thanks for asking. Um, number one thing is to understand that you need to get your speed light off the top of your camera. The reason for that, when we put the main light on the same axis as the lens and we're illuminating both sides of somebody's face, for instance, it's really flat. I mean, it begins to look like a driver's license photo. When you move the flash, if you can imagine, just like in a big circle around your subject, when that flash gets like, 45 degrees to the left or 60 degrees to the left or 90 degrees to the left or to the right either way. But in that zone, it's going to be throwing shadows across the side of your subject's face. And one of the ways that we see depth in a two-dimensional image in a photograph, one of the ways we decode depth is through the shadows. So you've got to be able to move your speed light off camera. So you can do that in manual mode with a PC cord, which will cost you 15 or 20 bucks, 
or you can do that in ETTL mode with a cord that's going to cost you maybe 45 to 60 bucks. But if you're just learning, as I said earlier in the show, I think it's really, really important to shoot in manual. And I don't care what you shoot. You know, shoot a basketball sitting on top of a chair. Um, in fact, basketballs are really great test subjects because they're spherical and they have texture. Yeah. So you're really going to be able to see what the shadows are doing. But take a speed light on a cord, move it literally in a giant circle, and then in a small circle around your subject and study how that light changes. The other thing you've got to do, all these speed lights today have um, built-in zoom functions. And I think of the zoom setting on my Canon speed lights, and my Canon speed lights will zoom from 24 millimeters to 105 millimeters. The idea that the, the camera engineers had was that they want to concentrate the field of light onto the same zone that the camera is seeing or the same angle of view. Yeah. I look at it and I say, no, no, no. I actually want to concentrate that field of light into a much smaller area. Going back again to that important lesson from McNally, if you want to make something interesting, don't light all of it. So the other thing you've got to do when you're exploring flash is zoom it manually. Go to a, literally, you can do this with your camera on top or the flash on top of your camera on a tripod. Find a dark wall at night or inside your house. Lock your camera down in a tripod and zoom it to all the different flash settings and fire it at a wall so you can begin to see what the field of coverage looks like and also understand you don't always have to put that speed light dead center on your subject. When you fire it at a wall in a dark room, you'll see a really bright spot in the center, and then you'll kind of see a zone of gray around the perimeter as it merges off to darkness. Understand that zone, because that's called feathering. When you don't point your light right at your subject, but you let the light fly past them, so that you're actually painting your subject with that zone of transition right on the edge of illumination, that's really, really cool light. So spend all the time you can with your speed light off the top of your camera, doing all kinds of different manipulations between power settings and zoom settings. And then lastly, find a sheet, find a sheet of white cardboard, find different modifiers laying around your house or your office, and just fire that speed light through them or into them and come to understand how that changes where it, that light goes and, and how it affects the look of the shadows on your subject. It's excellent advice. So, all right, before I'm going to take a couple of more questions, but before I do that, I wanted to have you talk a little bit about your, your website, your uh, speedlighting. Uh, it's okay. speedlighting.com. You just launched that a couple of days ago. Um, What's it all about, and what's, and who's it for? Well, the first thing to, to know about it is that speed lighting is spelled wrong to most people because it's the word speed and then L-I-T-I-N-G. There's no, it's not G-H-T-I-N-G, it's, and that's because that's how Canon spells speed light. Mm-hmm. So speedlighting.com is a site that I've created that is really for and expressly for Canon flash photographers. Certainly don't mind if our friends who shoot Nikon or any other brand of camera come. There's lots of great info on the site. But particularly when I talk about gear and when I talk about pushing buttons and turning dials, 
I'm doing that on Canon gear. But speed lighting um, is a, a labor of love, as most websites are, most blogs are. Um, it's multifaceted. There is a blog component. The name of the blog is How To. Um, I think I've been publishing articles for eight or ten days now, so it's you know a pretty short list of articles so far. But How To will become, over time, a long series of exactly that, how-to articles on Canon flash photography. Um, There's a section called gear where I go through, and it's not complete yet either, but I wanted to get it out there, where I talk about different types of gear, um, and and I do talk about specific brands of gear, what I like, and sometimes, frankly, what I don't like about specific brands of gear. Um, And then just yesterday, we we added a section, we being me, myself, and I, there's only one um, person behind (laughs) Lighting. The royal we, right? Yeah, the royal we. Um, I just added the speed lighting forum yesterday, and um, and that is, uh, you know, very much like any other online web community. Over time, it will become a twenty four seven answer center for issues and questions relating to Canon flash photography. So I have to say, you know, I love Pixelated. I've been blogging for almost two years now on Pixelated. I've got a a pretty sizable readership around the world. Um, But speed lighting is also kind of just pulling at my heartstrings because it's amazing. There's so much information out there that is specific to Nikon, Mm -hmm. Flash, and so little information that's specific to Canon. So I think the the territory is wide open for me. That's great. Well, thank you for building this. I'm sure the uh, This Week in Photography audience is going to be all over the site because I know they're hungry for knowledge. Yep, absolutely. All right, here's another question from William Hahn. He says, what positioning tips do you have for a shooter with a single off-camera speed light? And you may have answered that with, with the okay. previous question, but there's that one anyway. Okay. So, so, William, what I want you to do is find speed lighting and then hit the how-to blog tab and then scroll through the headlines down to the article I put up a week or, or 10 days ago. Um, called it's where you put the one speed light you have that matters because that will show you what you can do with one speed light. And you're right, Frederick, I did sort of dance around this already. Um, The important thing to remember with one speed light, again, the sweet spot really is kind of about 45 degrees to 90 degrees from your subject, okay? If the speed light starts to move behind your subject, like from 90 degrees to, I don't know, 135, 150 degrees, somewhere in there, then it's effectively becoming a rim light. And that's not bad, but the front of your subject, if you're going to use your one speed light as a rim light, then the front of your subject has to be really well lit by ambient. So if you're in a room, for instance, where there's the same amount of light falling on your subject and on the background, you can then use your one speed light back kind of in that that rear quarter behind the subject as as a rim light or as a separation light. And the idea behind that is you turn the power up a little bit and you create a really bright zone that helps separate your subject from the background. Gotcha. All right, one more question. Um, This one is from Sean Stevens, and Sean says, if you've got one 580EX, is that 580EX2, and a bunch of 430s, is it good enough to fill in a complete lighting system indoors? Yeah, you know, that's a great, great question as well. 
Um, one of my dear friends, in fact, I, I, uh, is M.D. Welch up in, up in Reno. And M.D. and I were kind of greenhorns together in one of the Joe McNally workshops in Santa Fe a number of years back. And he and I remained good friends ever since. And last summer, I, I was up in Reno shooting with M.D., and he shared with me that that's the exact approach he took. Because a 430EX2 is, you know, depending on where you buy, 235 to 250 bucks thereabouts. And a 580EX is somewhere in the range of like 450 to five and a quarter. Mm -hmm. So you've got this decision. You've got to have a 580EX or 580EX2 as a master because the 430 series will not be masters. But they're more than happy to be slaves. So I think it's a really fair argument. And, yeah, I would definitely consider getting two 430s instead of one 580 um, as my slave lights. But here's the other thing to remember. If you're going to go out and shoot for somebody and expect to get paid for it, and it's a serious deal like a wedding, you really owe it to your client, regardless of how much or how little they're paying you. You really owe it to them to come with the right amount of gear. And what I mean by that is you've got to have a backup master in case your 1580 hits the deck and breaks, you've got to have another way. If you've got one 580 and two 430s and the 580 dies, then you've got basically an on-camera flash and a spare. Yeah. So that would be the other consideration as well. But that doesn't mean that you can't just call up a buddy and say, hey, can I borrow your 580 and throw it in my bag for the night? Yeah. All right, so any any parting shots? You know, what If you had to give the This Week in Photography audience one last tip on... Uh, flash photography or getting started or, or getting that, that, that once-in-a-lifetime shot, what would you tell them? Well, that's like four questions, and so I'll probably give you three and a half answers. <laughs> Go uh, for it. If you're just getting started, there's a ton of great information online. Um, you know, Strobist is such an amazing website. It's been up for several years. The content in the community is really, really deep. There's an orientation um, on Strobus towards manual flash, which is perfectly fine when you're learning. And um, then beyond that, if you're you know looking to move on specifically in the world of Nikon or Canon, you know Joe McNally does a great job with Nikon's ITTL system. Talks about it all the time on his blog. Um, I certainly um, with speed lighting am going to become a center of influence for Canon shooters with the ETTL system. Yeah. The other thing that's really important is you just got to get out there and shoot. So many people are stymied by this gear um, or they're afraid to say, hey, you know, I'm making crappy photographs. Believe me, I'm the first guy to say I make tons of crappy photographs and very, very infrequently do I make one that I think is really, really worth keeping. So don't be afraid to make mistakes. Don't be afraid to ask for help. And then when you get some steam behind you and you get some experience – Absolutely, never hesitate to share that with another photographer because you just never know when that goodwill is going to come back in your favor. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so where where can uh, folks go to find out more about you and and learn more about the speed lighting stuff? We know about speedlighting.com. Okay. Uh, where are your other presences? Okay, um, my my main blog is pixelated. Again, that's p i x s y l a t e d dot com. And my um, commercial portfolio is just my name. It's silarena.com, S-Y-L, 
A-R-E-N-A.com. And you guys can find me on Facebook and Twitter just by searching on my name. I'm out there. Gotcha. Well, so thank you so much for coming on the show. I know this is a, it's a, a little bit late on a Tuesday evening, but thanks for taking the time to fill us in on all the speed lighting magic. Oh, it's been a hoot. I really appreciate the opportunity, Frederick. All right. Thanks, Sil. And that was Sil Arena. If you want to learn more about what he's working on, head over to his website at pixelated.com, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And now let's, uh, let's jump into the listener questions. The first question I'm going to throw to you, Alex. It's from Hans J. Hansen. You want to take it away? Here's a, here's a question here. I am currently shooting with a Canon 400D, and I'm thinking about upgrading. I've been, I've been looking at the 7D mainly because of price, but lately I've, gotten, uh, I've, I've kind of gotten the impression that full frame is a must if you're going to be taking photography seriously. And therefore, I've been thinking about sticking to my old camera for a while and saving up for the 5D Mark II. I understand that a cropped camera is, well, cropped. Uh, but can't uh, I just make up for it by using a wider lens? Or is, uh, is it also a question of image quality? So my answer for this, I own uh, a few 5Ds and a few 70s. And so I'm, I'm the perfect person to ask about this, I think. Um, my opinion of the two cameras really is if I, if I really want a SLR that's going to do video, then I really then the seven D is kind of a little bit more built for that, and it's you know it shoots twenty three nine eight and it, and it's got a little video switch and it's just a little bit more of a video. But I just shot a ton of stills with a seven D, thinking I was going to use it more for video, and then I used it for still. And I have to say that the quality, especially in low light, the quality difference between the seven D and the five D is significant. Um, you know, there's a lot more uh, there's a lot more grain. <laughs> you know, when you get into the sixteen hundred ISO and above. Um, you really start noticing it quickly on the 70. And so if I was, if I, if I would um, uh, probably be tempted to, once you get into that price range of the 70, you're spending whatever, 14 or $1,500. And, you know, I would um, think about possibly saving a little bit longer. If it's going to be a long time that you're going to save, you know, buy the camera that you can afford right now. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing that yeah. you're going to spend the most money on is lenses. And so buy great lenses and then keep on upgrading. Don't buy digital lenses, if, you know, crop sensor lenses. Uh, if you're going to keep on moving up to a, a full frame, you know, uh, you know, full size sensor. So, so, um, you know, buy good, you know, high quality lenses for your camera. If, uh, if it's going to be another year that you're going to wait, I wouldn't lose a year of photography to wait for, a, you know, to go to a, from the 70 to the 5D. But if it's another couple months and you, and you, you know, I might, um, you know, I might be more inclined, uh, but I will say that it's not so much the resolution. Uh, it's mostly the, the low light um, performance of the, um, the, of the 5D that stands considerably higher than the, than the 70, in my opinion. Gotcha. All right, question number two. I'm going to hit it over to Joseph. Joseph, take it away. Question number two from John Bradley. It says, I'm rediscovering photography after 15-plus years out and having fun moving from film SLR to digital SLR. I'm sensing that post-processing is 50% of producing pictures that will sell in this digital age. Do you agree? And what customizations besides watermarks do you recommend? So uh, it really depends on where where you're trying to sell, I suppose. I mean, custom, manipulating the image is a big part of it, whether it's manipulation from what we were talking about earlier of, of moving or removing or adding things in that weren't there versus just basic retouching. you got to consider that retouching is not new, right? Just because we have computers and we now dodge and burn in the computers and enhance colors in the computers doesn't mean it's the first time it's ever been done. Pictures have been manipulated in the darkroom since since cameras existed, since film existed, right? That was always part of the game. So 
I don't think that really changes. If you're trying to sell something into the world of illustration, then sure, there's going to be a lot more manipulation that's happening, um, maybe some compositing or just you know crazy colors or whatever the case may be. But I wouldn't say that it's a required thing. Do you need to learn the tools like Aperture or Lightroom? Yeah, you really do. You do need to learn those. You need to learn the basics. But I don't know if I'd go as far as saying it's 50% of, of selling an image. 100% of selling an image is having a good image to sell in the first place. Absolutely. Very well said. Cool. All right, guys, let's jump into the picks of the week real quick. Um, and Alex, do you have a pick have ready a pick. to go? So nope. uh, I'm going to pick. I don't believe that I picked this. I think I've, I've talked about it in the past, but I don't believe I picked it, which is the, uh, the Light Panels uh, Micro Pro. I mm-hmm. think I've talked about the Micro in the past. Um, but the Pro is kind of the larger version of uh, of the Micro. I have one right here. See, so watch this. Ooh, look at that. Oh. <laughs> oh, I've seen that in your office. That's that thing. Yeah. yeah. So it's a it's a bunch of LEDs, and it's uh, what's really nice about it is it's run by a bunch of AA batteries, and they last forever. I mean, it just it's just incredible how long this will last. And and I have to admit, I come to stills. I mean, I grew up doing stills for a long time, but when I really got techie about it, I came from already doing a lot of video, and I'm kind of not used to flashes. <laughs> so, so I'm really used to just having the light on all the time. And so, you know, and I'm used to just kind of sitting there watching it and kind of modeling it and everything else. And so mm-hmm. it's great. Um, it, it's something that you can put on a, um, you know, put on a little rig, and you can have it a t- little bit to the side. Uh, I like it because I don't like, fl- I don't like being flashed, and I don't like flashing other people. Um, you know, it's not good. To, you know, you know, <laughs> you so can the, get arrested uh, in some states for that. Alex. Exactly, exactly. So I don't like flashing. You know, I think it's a bad thing. And so, so I like to have a steady light. And uh, uh, anyway, so uh, we use it a lot for video. Uh, it is the light that I throw in my bag when I'm walking. You know, if I'm just going to be doing something, you know, uh, small and and off the shelf. It's. I don't know what the price is currently. I think it might because be that was my next question. Because I would like to buy a couple of those if they're like. Not Alex slash Scott Bourne level stuff. No, they're I know I know I think it's like four hundred or five hundred dollars. I, I should look yeah. on the website, but it's but it's a yeah, no, but the no. thing is, is we use it all <laughs> we use it all the time. You know, and, and it's and and we really uh they make us very happy. And um and we have bought um see this one this one actually uh came from light panels. They actually sent it to us for a test. Uh, the but we have purchased uh, fourteen of the one by ones. So we so when I say but that it, we're really into wait a minute, wait a minute. If that's four hundred dollars, Joseph, you were telling me over the weekend about this lighting set that comes with two heads, soft boxes, and stands for three hundred dollars. Right. I mean, well, I, no, granted, I was, I was it's just, not LED. It's, it's and it doesn't run on double portable. A's. But come on, well, it's, it's not portable. That's the thing. What Alex has here slaps on top of his camera. He takes it with him. What we're talking about is a studio kit. So uh, what Frederick's talking about is, is I did recently bought a lighting kit system from Sammy's. It was 300 bucks for two daylight balanced fluorescent type bulbs. So they last for a really long time. And it came with uh, kind of an umbrella slash softbox hybrid thing that's really, really cool. Light stands, a carrying case and everything. And it's 300 bucks retail. And I got it for you know, less than that at Sammy's. So it's really cheap, bright light, really nice and clean, but it's not portable. I think that's the difference here. Yeah, what you're paying for is yeah portability, um, this you know the size, the uh, you know the fact that it'll last a long time. You're leaving it on, especially if you're thinking about using your SLR for video. And by the way, I uh, that is uh, a hot topic. I talked to someone. I can't talk about who they were, but I uh, um, who were they? Talked to someone about photography, <laughs> photography, and the fact that it's a magazine basically telling all of their photojournalists that if we're going to send you to another continent, we expect you to come back with video and stills at the same time. Like you're mm-hmm. not going to. 
if you want to do work, I mean, I've been talking about this for years now <laughs> that it's coming. And now these are large magazines telling their photojournalists that uh, you need to have both skills because uh, we expect both um, or, you know, this isn't going to be the right place for you. I mean, that's that that's the kind of um, and a lot of that is responses to stuff like their pre- they may or may not be pre- preparing for things like the iPad and stuff like that where they need, you know, it's not going to be, you know, very true. Yeah, it's all multimedia of, now. Yeah. Yeah. When, when the, the iPad is going to be the the end of a, you know, a photojournalist being a still photographer, unless they're at like Steve Simon level. I mean, like really, really, really high uh, level photojournalists can probably still just say, well, all I'm going to do is stills. But the next generation is no one in the next generation is going to be able to get in without being able to show that they can do both. Yeah. So this Joseph, is a video. Joseph, what, so, go ahead. I'm sorry, Alex. Go ahead. So this just makes it so you're shooting some stills, but but also if you're thinking of using your camera, your SLR as, as a video camera as well, being able to add that on um, is uh, uh, is important. You know, you know, and, and 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 this is a continuous light, which is much different than I I I look at photo photographers' flashes, and I just think that they look so cute. You know, you know, like like they're like they're so great. I was like, I wish I could live in that little world that that they're just yeah. But you know, there's as Silarino was saying in the interview, there's a lot you can do with those little strobes that you oh, can't I know, do. No, no, no. There's so much you can do, and there's so much feeling. You see how incredible the photos are, and from a video guy's pr- perspective, that's a lot of light. You know, that's a mm-hmm. lot of you know on our end, that would be a lot of work to get a light that would be able to do you know to create that feeling. So it's. I'm always impressed at how much they can get out of something that's that's so compact uh, because it doesn't have to be on continuously. Yeah, not to mention the the shutter speeds and all that stuff. So it's, I'm afraid, I'm afraid it's I have another show. I have to I have to run to Twim. It's oh, it, we're on we got to wrap it up. But, okay, but you all guys right. can keep on going. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna jump out early. All right, you you just go do your Twim thing. We we can Thank finish you. this without you. Beat it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Alex. Thanks. So uh, go do your thing, and Joseph and I will close off the show. Joseph, what is your your pick? My pick of the week, I'm going to give a shout out to one of our sponsors from the This Week in Photography weekend workshop, and that's to Honnell Photo. For um, David Honnell over there sent us a few of his lighting kits, his light manipulators that we're able to use out in the out in the field. And if you haven't seen these before, these are fantastic. They are comprised of a series of attachments for your small strobe, for your on-camera strobe or off-camera strobe. And everything is based off of something called the speed strap. It's just basically a strip of Velcro that wraps around your flash head. And then you can put all kinds of modifiers on there, grids and snoots and gels and just all kinds of stuff. And it's really, really fun to work with. Actually, at the workshop was the first time that I had worked with it um, outside of just playing with it at home. And they're beautiful. They work as advertised, pack up really small and lightweight. And uh, there's definitely a very, very cool thing to check out. So Honol Photo, H-O-N-L photo.com. Check those things out. They are beautiful. Very cool. And quickly, my pick is a little plug-in for Aperture or for Lightroom, actually. And I think they have one for Aperture and, and Photoshop as well. But it's called Portraiture 2. And it's a uh, portrait retouching plug-in from a company called imagenomic.com. It goes for $200. And if you're doing any sort of people photography and you can afford this $200, um, it's magic. It allows you to load the image in and um, essentially with a couple of clicks, remove a lot of the detail from skin. You know, if you want to smooth out the skin without without losing the detail in the eyes and, and the mouth and that sort of area. Uh, but you can also brush these changes in. Now, there's a lot of uh, features in uh, Lightroom and Aperture and, of course, Photoshop that allow you to do this out of the box. But this is just raw code horsepower purpose built for making people's skin look flawless. So I would definitely check it out. It's at imagenomic.com. And it's called Portraiture 2. 
It's uh, 200 bucks. And with that, I'm going to, uh, we can close the show off. I'm going to tell folks where they can find Alex since he had to disappear. You can find him on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Alex Lindsay. And Joseph, where, where are you located online? You can find me at photojoseph.com and also at apertureexpert.com. Very cool. And if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can find me on my blog at frederickvan.com or on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash frederickvan. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. Mm-hmm.